Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the changes. Today, I'm joined by Denise Bauer. Hi, Denise. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It's fantastic to be here. Yeah, I saw your talk at the Serverless Days uh, virtual event recently, and uh, it's very much on topic. You were talking about how you're using Serverless uh, to tackle uh, COVID-19. And uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself and uh, some of the work you've been doing at CSIRO? Yes. So I work for CSIRO, which is Australia's government research agency. And at CSIRO, we're really passionate about translating research into products that people can use in their everyday life. Um, specifically, I work for the eHealth Research Center, which is the largest digital health initiative in Australia and worldwide quite unique in covering this full value chain from basic science all the way up to delivering health services into the clinic. And I guess uh, what sort of role has your team played in the Australia government's uh, response to COVID-19? And I'm also quite curious how uh, serverless technologies are played into the work you're doing in terms of uh, fighting against COVID. Yeah, with COVID, the key element to it was that we had to respond quite quickly. Um, therefore, the, one of the first questions that we needed to answer was, well, what is this virus? What can it do? What is its building plan? And how can we create you know, a vaccine and treatment for it? So luckily, um, with COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2, which is the underlying virus, um, the genomic sequence was generated quite quickly. So we did know about its building plan quite early on. And this really gave us a head start in understanding how, it's, you know, how the inter inner functions are. But given that all RNA viruses, which that one is, are mutating, um, it was quite important to compare one virus that was you know, selected from one individual to another one that was found in another person. And in order to do that, we were basically taking the fingerprint of the virus and its genome and comparing that. We used machine learning in order to really you know, understand the evolutionary trajectory that was on. Now, doing that was quite difficult because uh, the information luckily grew quite quickly in that the international um, community shared the data quite freely. But that also meant that very quickly we accumulated huge amounts of data. So at the moment, so the virus itself is 30,000 letters long. And at the moment, we have 200,000 versions of that virus sequence that we need to analyze. So clearly 200,000 times 30,000 is a huge number to be dealing with. And serverless really helped us with that. With serverless, we can split out the individual um, tasks of analyzing that genome to smaller chunks. And those smaller chunks can be processed on individual lambda functions. And then we can collect them back together in order to have um, you know, the, full, the full spectrum which is you know, very much aligned to you know, embarrassingly parallel processing on a high-performance compute machine. But here, we had the commodity hardware or the cloud rather than a really expensive high-performance computing system where we would have to queue up in order to get access to it. So all of this really has helped us in getting a head start and uh, understanding the virus better. 
Okay, that's interesting because uh, I've heard quite a few people talk about similar use cases where they're using Lambda as like a really cheap uh, supercomputer uh, where you can spin up, I don't know, what, 3,000 concurrent executions uh, with no warning and that gives you a lot of uh, parallel computing power and uh, without having to, like you said, rent a supercomputer where you have to go through approval and uh, you know, queuing up before you can get access to it. So in this case, uh, what does your architecture look like from 30,000 feet? Yes, yeah, so it's it's interesting in that uh, we had multiple components to it. So one was the interact with the user. The other one was the hardcore computer element to it. You know, while the 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 interaction with user part was the basic um, you know client server. In a high performance computer, the the scheduler is sort of the the core or where the smarts really is. And in the serverless world, we don't really quite have an equivalent element to that. There are step functions which can fan out and collect things together. But the problem is that, you know, when you're talking about the massive scale that we're that we're talking about, you know, three thousand lambdas, uh, you know, a million lambdas, um, this gets quite expensive very quickly. Therefore we had to go back to basic and use the SNS topic in order to have the transaction between the individual components. And then even lower grade we were writing things to S3 in order to sort of have temporary files that we can then collect and record in order to keep track of where in the fanning in and fanning out process we are. Therefore, from a you know, 30,000 feet overview, it's, we do have the API gateway interacting with the user. We do have um, the initial Lambda function that triggers everything. We do have a DynamoDB that uh, to some extent collects and keeps track of uh, what is happening. And then most of it goes to S3 and has then the communication on S3 and the SNS topic oversees this. And ultimately it goes back to a final Lambda function that collects all the data back together and sends it back to the API gateway. Okay, so in, in this case, the, the request from API gateway, is that for someone on the website trying to look at the visualization or is this API gateway for uh, someone posting some data to you because they have uh, published a new, uh, I guess identified a new uh, variant of the, of the virus and then they're publishing you some data? Yes, although we do have multiple use cases that to some extent have a similar underlying pattern. Therefore, we, um, we do our very first one was CT scan, which is basically the search engine for the genome where um, it is supporting genome engineering approaches. Uh, the, the next one was more around um, diagnostic or variant prioritization. So in the, you know, in your two million differences between you and the next person, the question is which of those differences might be relevant or might be critical to determine your um, ongoing treatment, for example, or your uh, susceptibility to certain drugs. Therefore, we do need to identify which one of those two million differences are crucial. And that is a, another serverless um, component to it, where we can annotate all of this with the information, the scientific and medical information that is out there. So in both cases, it is um, a, a user wanting to have information and then the inner workings of the system is bringing in additional information be that you know a, a genome or be that medical information in order to synthesize that um, that knowledge 
and condense it down and serve it back. Okay, so I guess uh, let me try to follow through the, the flow of, of information here. So you've got some, I guess, some crawler or something or some scanner, I think you mentioned, uh, that collects data, publishes to your API gateway endpoint that triggers Lambda function, then kicks off all these uh, parallel processing uh, in many, many Lambda functions that are running concurrently. And you're, you're saving the data into S3 temporarily so that uh, those Lambda functions can uh, get them from S3 and then start to process it. And then you, I guess you distill the information down to small chunks so that the, when someone goes to your website to see, I think I've seen those, uh, your visualization of the different, uh, I guess, lineage of those uh, virus and, uh, and the mutations. Um, and then you, I guess uh, at that point, once you first, you've, I guess, computed a lot of the data and then you distill it down to whatever's necessary to, uh, to, to support those visualizations. Is that what's going on here? Is that how the, um, the data is flowing through the system? Yeah, that's right. And then the web page is basically just a static web page that takes the updated information and visualizes that for, um, for the user. Okay, gotcha. Um, so in this case, uh, when you need to kick off those uh, parallel processing, you said that you, you were using uh, SNS. So in this case, uh, do you fire one message and trigger multiple Lambda functions to each pick up a different chunk, or are you firing one message for every chunk? Um, it depends on the use case, right? So typically is that we do have one task to say, give me the results back for a certain region in the genome. And then that region might be 10,000 letters long. So we strip it down into smaller chunks. And then depending on whether that smaller chunk is processing in time, it gets processed and then sent back. If not, then it gets flipped further um, in order to really uh, fit in with the Lambda and its uh, memory and runtime requirements and keep the runtime to a reasonable length for the user. Okay, okay. I'm asking because for a lot of the sort of, uh, the sort of map reduced type of task uh, you described earlier where you were using many concurrent Lambda invocations uh, to process something uh, in small chunks. I don't see that with uh, SNS because with SNS, typically you want a message to be fanned out to multiple listeners that are all interested in one message, whereas uh, in sort of map reduced task, you, you don't want the same message going to everybody. You want everyone to get a different message uh, that points to a different chunk of the task. So I'm trying to understand, what's the role of SNS here? Yes. So I think we started off with that everyone would get their um, respective chunks. Like you work from 1 to 100, you work from 100 to 200, and so on. Um, but I think in the end, we, we went more with the, we, process, we give you the same information, and then you go to S3 and look at what kind of temporary files need processing and then you pick one of those, process them, and deposit the results back, which in the end, especially with the, you know, with that recursion-based approach of you know, splitting further and further and further, uh, that, that was a, an easier way to handle that rather than keeping track of all the SNS messages um, that, that were sent and received and, and so on. Okay, so when you say recursion, are you right? So I guess that, does that mean that you're writing your function in a recursive way where they process as much as they can, and then they call themselves so that it recurs and you pass along and point it to how far along you are in the file. Yes, but except that um, this is handled through what is written on S3, like the temporary files that, is, that are on, on S3. 
I mean, there's still a termination element to it, but um, in, in terms of the identifying which point in the inception <laughs> the, this particular lambda function needs to operate, it's not the message that it gets from the previous re recurrent call, but from the information that is on three, uh, S3. And all it knows is that it needs to split itself. Okay, I, I see, I see. So you're not really writing a recursive function per se. Um, okay. Yeah, I've actually written uh, quite a few recursive functions uh, um, in the past uh, when I need to process a really large S3 file that I can't finish in one invocation for 15 minutes. So uh, I'll, no, I just, at the end of the function, I, well, I guess I process them in smaller chunks that I know will only take, what, 10 seconds. And then every at the end of it, I check, uh, uh, do I have enough time left in the invocation? If not, then uh, I recurse, mm -hmm. uh, call my function again, pass along a pointer, so that uh, I know, okay, I've uh, processed the you know, the first thirty thousand rows. So when I call myself again and uh, invoke myself again, uh, I should start from the thirty thousand and the first uh, row. I guess it's more classic uh, recursion technique uh, they use in uh, in functional programming. Yes. But uh, but I think a lot of people consider the recursive functions as an anti pattern. <laughs> Certainly, a few of the fr my friends. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, a few other people in the AWS oh, yeah. uh, have, have told me, uh, uh, yeah, that you shouldn't use the uh, right recursive functions uh, because if you're not careful, then uh, you you kind of miss the terminal uh, condition, and then uh, you just have infinite recursion. <laughs> yeah, I think I think this was one of the reasons that we went for this, uh, you know, half-hearted, if you want, recursion in um, having the fallback option with the with the temporary files on S3, because I mean you can spend. <laughs> A lot of money if you um, if you don't terminate your thing and it just keeps on running forever and spinning up ten thousand of lambda functions. Yeah, yeah, and I also had uh, with S3. I also had uh, heard people run into infinite recursion in the past, where uh, you you use S3 to trigger a lambda function, uh, which then writes a file back into S3, but in the same bucket. Or well, I guess you didn't think about it uh, through, so that uh, that triggers a function again. Writes, fun, uh, writes files into mm, S3, and then yeah. that also happens as well. I've had um, a few people, I think I read a blog post a while back, someone did exactly that, <laughs> and then I got a, a, got a you know, reasonable size bill at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, in the past with Haskell, you were running it locally, and uh, nothing bad could ever happen from it. <laughs> Whereas here, yes, you can rack up quite a big bill. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I, I come from a, a functional programming background as well. I did a lot of F-sharp uh, first uh, how many years of my career. And um, I guess the uh, recursion, it comes natural to me. And uh, when people tell me that, uh, oh, mm. you, you're going to miss the terminal condition and end up with uh, infinite recursion, I'm like, well, that's never happened to me. <laughs> but I totally see you know, <laughs> how, how it's an easy mistake to make. Uh, even with things like S3 and things like that, when you trigger your function, that can still be bad. But I guess uh, you're not doing that. You, uh, you are running to S3, but then you are kicking off the invocation yourself. You're not using S3 to trigger the function, right? That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, some of the Lambda functions can get lost as well. So therefore, even if you have the perfect uh, fail-safe recursion, you know, if the system fails you, then you still <laughs> run into the issue that uh, it might keep on going forever. Right, right, gotcha, gotcha. Um, so I guess uh, maybe 
Have you run into any any issues with uh, using the serverless uh, for this line of work? Uh, was it something that was easy to introduce to your team? I guess uh, a lot of the data scientists I've worked with uh, aren't really, I guess, programmers by trade. No, they know how to write Python, they know how to write algorithms, uh, but maybe not quite familiar with uh, some of the, I guess, practices that we use things like CI/CD, things like you know building observabilities and logging and all of that. Have you run into some, I guess, uh, issues in terms of the technology itself or in terms of the practices? I think we're a bit different yet again to the uh, traditional data scientists, I would say. So as researchers, I wouldn't say it sort of it comes second nature to explore things, but to take up new new things and leave your your training behind is something that we need to do basically over and over again. Like you, you, you never have stopped learning. And I think from that perspective, there wasn't the, the problem of uh, we've never done it this way. So why would we start doing this way? It was, there, was never, there was never an issue. But given that we were never really trained either way, um, we do have to discover you know, everything from scratch. As I said, it's it's good and bad in that you don't have the baggage, but at the same time you you don't have any guidance either. So uh, for us, the main issue with serverless was not necessarily around the logging and um, the and the inconveniences because we didn't know better. For us, the problem was the sh the, the limitation of the technology itself. Like at the very beginning, Lambda was so tiny that it was incredibly crucially painful to do anything with it. Therefore, the, um, the paralyzation had to be extremely hardcore in order to get anything done. With the increase, that is a bit, um, a bit better. But I think we're still quite there in terms of, not quite there in terms of the, um, the orchestration of the Lambda function itself. As I was saying, there is, there is step functions, but it's not a job scheduler in the um, in the high-performance compute sense. Therefore, if you're using Lambda in that sense, it gets tricky and you have to write your own scheduler. And I think similarly with, with for example, Athena, it wasn't, it wasn't quite up to, to scratch for the application case that we had uh, for writing large volumes of data very quickly and reading it and writing it again. So therefore, you know, in most cases, we had to go back to the basic building blocks and roll our own. Okay, so I guess when you say lambdas are so small, you uh, and then later increased. I guess you're referring to the the maximum runtime of five minutes. Then now it's uh, fifteen minutes. Memory more so than runtime. Ah, okay. Because you see that the genome is is quite big, and while you can split it up into chromosomes they are still enormous <laughs> and uh, therefore splitting it up into further tongues is possible but it requires um, some additional uh, cleverness in how to handle that because one region of the genome might influence another region of the genome and you lose that information when you um, when you chop it up into buckets gotcha gotcha um, so in this case uh, i guess uh, you're running functions that are what uh, all uh, maxed out at uh, three gig so that you can keep as much as possible inside one invocation and do all your number crunching. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Got you. Understand. Okay. Now I understand. Um, so in this case, I guess the how do you guys uh, decide to use uh, you know, Lambda to begin with? 
No, you, you said the, the fact that you can get a lot of uh, uh, compute power uh, very quickly, very cheaply is, uh, is, is, uh, is a good reason why you wanted to do it. But then, like you said, some of the limitations around memory, some of the limitations around runtime. Uh, do you guys uh, look at maybe containers and potentially as, uh, as alternatives or at least for some part of your workload? Yeah, I think when we started with serverless, I remember it was one of the first AWS summits here in Sydney where they introduced Lambda as this cool new thing for, you know, the Alexa skills. <laughs> and we figured, well, if they can do it for that, maybe we could look into that as well because one of the key elements to it was the burstable work workload and being able to handle that. And this was exactly what we had. Not because back then we would go to hundreds and thousands of users, but because we would have days where there was no activity on the page at all. And we didn't want to spend money on that. Therefore, given this combination of that, we had to process huge amounts of data and therefore would have to spin up very beefy instances that would either sit idly for days because there was no one on the page, or the user would have to be patient and wait for those beefy instances to be spun up. Both were not, not acceptable because Clearly, we didn't have the money to um, to keep a beefy instant running, but in terms of the time that a user, a researcher, would wait for a web service to spin up is <laughs> basically non-existent. Historically, that someone would submit a job and then it would come back to them as an email to say, oh, it's finished. But I think the acceptance for something like that around new technology, new analyses is quite low our new approach, you know, analyzing the genome, we had to do it fast. Therefore, serverless was, you know, fitting the bill of what we wanted to achieve in a economical way, fast uh, turnaround time uh, for, you know, catering to new researchers. Okay, okay, gotcha. And uh, in, your, in your talk at the serverless days virtual, uh, you also mentioned that a lot of the typical architectural patterns don't work for research. So you guys have to sort of you know, come up with some of your own patterns. Can you go into more sort of details on that? I'm curious about some of the unique challenges that you guys face in the research space. Yeah. So while the communication with the user as a client server would be a standard pattern and we, um, we use the standard approaches and tweak them if we had to, the rest isn't quite fitting in. So with other, with other people now repurposing Lambda as a high-performance compute, maybe there are some patterns emerging around that. But the, uh, the parallelization and, and using Lambda through a scheduler isn't something that is a standard pattern out there. So we do need to, need to create our own communication system there. But I think more so is that research, the product that you develop there is not necessarily the way that a user interacts with the web page. It is more around the, the analysis result that you return. That's, that's the value proposition. And therefore, I think in, in the research, we are potentially a bit more flexible in standing up and tearing down solutions more so than in the commercial world, where they really have to put up rock solid redundancy proof uh, and, and uh, uptime guaranteeing systems. Whereas I think in the research, researchers are a little bit more forgiving in that, in that respect when it comes to the architecture, less so in terms of the actual um, analytical method that is underlying it. 
therefore the focus um, is then more on the analytical method and with the architecture, we can be more flexible. But that also means that with the underlying analytics being the focus, there is a lot of change in there. Therefore, our technology needs to be, or our architecture needs to be hugely modular because from one day to the next, the um, analysis engine could be ripped out and replaced with another one. And again, you know, in terms of Lambda, this suits us perfectly because we can replace one Lambda function with another Lambda function that has a different analysis engine in it. So I think from our perspective, we are, the emphasis is more on agile, fast, not necessarily robust architecture when it comes to delivering out the analysis. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And I think that's actually quite a nice position to be in because uh, one of the harder things uh, is that uh, you know, when you are developing, you can just you know, like what you guys do. Uh, when you need to make a big change, you just go ahead and do it and then just replace the whole stack. But once you go live, that's it. You know, a lot of the decisions that, bad decisions that you've made are fixed in time. You have to just live with it to some extent and gradually maybe move away from it. But it's, it's, a, it's a slow and painful process sometimes. Uh, being able to just throw a lot of that mistake away <laughs> once you know better, I think it's actually quite a nice position to be in. <laughs> It is a double-edged sword, though. Like, on one hand, I'm, I'm perfectly aware that we don't have to put in the due diligence that other people have so we can move faster. Therefore, when, you know, whenever people come to me and say, oh, this is, is you know, revolutionizing what you've done there, I'm like, well, that's what we are expected to do rather than producing this really well-architectured, robust client thing. Uh, but on the other hand, it also means that we are expected to move fast and come up with new solutions and never stand still. Therefore, we can never have this perfect architecture that we can polish and be done with it one day. Do you know what I mean? Whatever we put together is ne can never be beautiful. <laughs> it will always have to serve the purpose and uh, be teared down the next day. <laughs> I guess uh, that can be... Uh... I guess difficult because uh, you know you do, you're spending all this time into this work, and then the next day is is torn away because uh, the project is over, and you know you now you have to do something else to maybe to go into another research, uh, another project. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um. So, so thank you so much for that. That gave me a lot of insights into how the expectation, but also in terms of uh, uh, the sort of requirements you guys have, uh, maybe being slightly different to more traditional application development. Um, I've been talking to quite a few people uh, in, I guess, Australia, and there seems to be quite a lot of interest in serverless. Certainly, I'm seeing a lot of uptick in the serverless in the last uh, 12 months. Uh, I recently opened a new video course on AppSync, and uh, surprise, well, it was a big surprise to me when I found out that uh, Australia is my third most popular <laughs> country uh, of, of students. <laughs> Uh, so have you also seen something similar happening in Australia where there's a growing interest in the serverless technologies? Well, once you go serverless, you never go back. <laughs> 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 now, I think um, A Cloud Guru, for example, it is an Australian company, right? And I'm sure you're familiar with it. All their video system is running serverless, right? I think that it was one of the first really big Australian companies that, that did that. Similarly with... Um, with the Bureau of Statistics, the sensor, <laughs> the sensor webpage is running serverless architecture. So I think from our perspective, as Australians, I think we are quite eager to explore new things. And serverless is this 
fun, lightweight, modular technology where we can just have a go and experiment. And I think people, that really resonates with people and they like that. It certainly does with us. <laughs> okay, yeah, gotcha. Um, yeah, I, I, I do know uh, um, ACG very well and I had uh, Dale Salter from uh, Cloud Guru on this show a little while back. And uh, one of the one of the founders, um, uh, and Stanley is a good friend of mine. He also hosts the, uh, I guess he's also part of the community that runs the serverless states, the conferences around the world. Um, and we've, me and him, we have done quite a few things to, together already. Uh, but I guess, uh, like you said, having that uh, one really uh, prominent company doing all fully serverless, I think that has got a nice uh, networking effect within the uh, companies around the area. Um, so with the reInvent coming around the corner, do you have any wish list items that you hope that they will address this year? <laughs> so reInvent, I always look forward to that one. Similarly with the AWS summits, it's like, you know, my Christmas. <laughs> um, and But this year I noticed that in terms of science and academia, there's not that much there. And I wonder why that's really the case. So I think as an AWS hero with science and academia is the, you know, my core business. I think I need to work a little bit harder in order to bring that community in. So I think one of my big wish lists is to really have more content that is catered for research, innovation, potentially academia, in order to bring all of that innovation potential that I know is in the um, academic and the research space, to bring that into, in quotes, the real world, like uh, translate that into things that really could accelerate the uh, companies and economy in, in general. So that is from a you know very aspirational level. In terms of technical things, something that is very niche and specific to, I think, the, the research community is that we definitely need to have more reference data. Like there are these enormous data sets uh, currently on-premise somewhere and you can apply for access and then you typically are expected to copy that data over. Like how last century is that is that practice? We do need to have more of those high value reference data sets on the cloud so that um, the updates are streamlined, validation is happening automatically. And as, well, as scientists, we can just consume that data to do our research. Similarly, in terms of compliance, specifically in the, in the health space, there is um, machine learning as a medical device, software as a medical device in general. Like all of this is coming in order to improve patient care, but the compliance workaround around it to have only one version and then that version is accredited and you have to stick with that one version until you get the next one. Like that is not, with continuous integration, that is not um, something that the software industry is, is advocating or has evolved to. Therefore, I think the medical space need to evolve with it and have compliance as a service where um, the software is accredited on the fly on, say, a standardized data set and therefore gets the accreditation um, as a continuous, as part of the continuous delivery process. And I think the economy of scale of the cloud providers can really bring that into something that is realistically achieved within the next two years. And lastly, <laughs> is to have serverless on the marketplace. <laughs> so there's a digital marketplace, but it largely is focused around commercializing virtual machines. We did tweak it a bit to now also encapsulate elastic MapReduce clusters. 
the EMR clusters, but that's still a far cry from an actual serverless architecture to be uh, monetized through the marketplace. That is something that I would like to see. Okay, that's a really interesting idea. And I think something that uh, I remember Simon Wanderley spoke about uh, well, long time ago now that uh, you've got your Lambda functions as your uh, low-level abstraction for a lot of your business logic, but then there's nothing stopping you from taking some of the uh, analytics stuff that you guys have done, some of the research work you guys have done, and then package that up as a, a function that somebody else can just uh, deploy into their environment or maybe some trading algorithm, and then they can pay, I guess, a fraction of the Lambda cost that they incur uh, as money going back to, into the people that are publishing those uh, packaged functions uh, in the marketplace. Is that along of what you're thinking, that you can package your, your functions, your logic, and then just make it available for other people to run in their, their environment? Exactly. So I feel like we're 90% there already with the libraries, the serverless libraries that is out there where you can go in and find patterns or you know, serverless patterns or even function themselves. Now, the only thing that is missing is the monetization element around that. And I think this really would support open source development where you can have an open source core that is published, that is potentially peer reviewed, that is rock solid and a lot of people have looked over it. And then you sell the convenience of having that packaged up in an architecture um, that is efficient and links in together modularly with a lot of other interaction points. So I think this will be this will be definitely something that I would like to see going forward. It would definitely you know open up the whole building block. Right? You can you can just take a building block off the shelf. You pay for that element as part of your of your runtime, just as you would pay for the architecture to AWS. But here you pay to the actual developer to continue their open source uh, development further. Okay. And uh, I guess uh, along that, sort of s that same line, um, they've announced the uh, uh, Lambda signing recently, I think just yesterday. Uh, that I guess that also maybe helps uh, in terms of uh, getting something onto the marketplace so that uh, it's uh, if the Lambda function itself is signed, uh, that means uh, you know the code hasn't been tampered with. Uh, but I guess, is there any sort of concern, at least from the as a researcher, mm -hmm. is there any concern that, okay, if someone you know, gets my function, they runs it from the marketplace, there's nothing stopping them from just copying uh, all of the hard work that we've done, uh, and then at some point, maybe they just stop using the version of the function they got from the marketplace and just you know, did a copy and paste, and so they don't have to pay us anymore. Is there any concerns from that side of things in terms of uh, uh, protecting well, intellectual properties? Yes and no. So I think there is, but with the open source 2.0 um, element to it, where the core, again, is open source, but the convenience, the wrapping around the convenience, but I think it will be a similar way that we need to be cleverly coming up with a convenience wrapper around the, um, the actual Lambda function itself that is the one that can be monetized. But ultimately, I'm not too worried about people copying elements as long as it's... Um, so people might be able to copy a, a specific version of it, but they subscribe to the continuously updating of that Lambda function. That is a, you know, the core business of researchers or developers to continue pushing your products or your, um, you know, your software further. And only you 
and the community that really invests in it can do that and not necessarily someone just copying blindly um, the, the, the code itself. Okay, okay, gotcha. I need to definitely think about this uh, some more. Uh, certainly, I guess uh, with the I guess with the more traditional software, I guess the licensing, there's a lot of uh, you know version one, two, three, four, and so on. And uh, you, you know, if you copy one version, potentially you have it for a certain amount of time when it's still valid and up to date. And then the new version comes out, uh, uh, and then maybe you know you do the same thing again. Uh, maybe more thought into need to go into that. Potentially, more some kind of support from AWS and the platform to maybe better protect those intellectual properties. Uh, but definitely, I think it's something that's worth doing, and definitely something that's worth uh, exploring as a, as a, like I said, as a way to encourage more people to you know do the work, but also share with the community so that people don't have to keep reinventing basic building blocks exactly. and patterns and things like that. Which I think the 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 service application repository was an attempt at that, but it's really just not quite as easy to use. And like I said, the service frameworks. Uh, components uh, it looks a lot better in a lot in terms of uh, how easy it is to integrate with an existing solution that you have yes that's exactly right yeah yeah um so uh, denise uh, thank you so much for uh, spending the time to talk to us today uh, before we go is there anything uh, else that you'd like to share maybe any sort of upcoming projects or uh, or speaking engagements um i think in terms of upcoming projects is we definitely need to think about how to bring the you know, the innovation and the commercial world closer together. I think it's absolutely crucial, especially in a, in a world where we want to build a digital economy, that the innovation potential is actually harnessed in the digital um, commercialization approaches, right? And I feel it's still a, a very much a silo in that you have the developer community of, um, of commercial companies and you do have the innovation and research community that is basically minding their own business, potentially just writing papers and be done with it. I think it will be a, a very interesting approach to see two areas can be fused together. And that certainly is one of the things that I would like to <laughs> um, work on. Might not achieve uh, relatively soon, but definitely work on and I definitely need the support from the community at large, from both communities at large. Okay, so how can people find you on the internet and uh, keep updated on the, what you are working on? Yep, people can definitely find us under um, bioinformatics.csro.au uh, or generally on, um, on Twitter. Okay, sure. I will make sure those are included in the show notes that the people can find it easily. And uh, thank you again so much, uh, Denise, for joining us today. And uh, stay safe and uh, hopefully see you uh, in person soon. Having me, this was fun, and definitely forward to in-person meeting again. <laughs> okay, take care. Bye bye. Bye. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.